0: Okay, so there's the welcome, it is, uh, I did not put any interesting and, f- and, uh, and uh, whatever backgrounds or anything like that, fancy backgrounds, thanks for that, Ronnie, uh, so that it's just a message, it's just what God wants. There's two video clips in here, the one you've seen before, but I felt deeply prompted by God to use that again, and I'm going to show it to you again. Um, yeah, I prayed a lot about this message frankly what do you say when you're about to go you know what do you say (laughs) goodbye that that's not what I want to preach about (laughs) of course the plan is to come and visit from time to time to bring messages to say hi Uh, but practically it's not always that easy because we will have to see how it works out and we won't be seeing you as as often so what to say when you're about to go I feel compelled as I prepared for this message to say the following and it's very simple if this works Suddenly becomes complex. It's very simple. Let me try again. There it is. Live meaningfully. Live meaningfully. Note the exclamation mark. Note that this is a phrase that is supposed to challenge all of us. And it is a challenge. It actually starts with an exhortation and an encouragement. Uh, It starts for me right here, Galatians 6 verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Note that this does not say, well, if you've been doing good for 40 years, you can then retire. It's not bound to age, it's not bound to circumstance. It's not bound to anything, but do this with God and keep doing it. That's it. It's a bottom line thing. Let us not become weary in doing good. The Amplified says it even a little bit better. Let us not grow weary or become discouraged in doing good. I mean, we, how often do we become discouraged? We look at the world around us. We look at what's happening Man, another battle on this front. Now the, this one about abortion that is in the, in the newsletter. And then there's a battle against religious freedom in schools and you know, all these kind of things. Do not become discouraged in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap if we do not give in. We do not give in. The contention, I think, is clear. Each of us individually... But also all of us together as a community, this church, as a community, are called by God to do good. It cannot be more bottom line than that. That's the bottom line message this morning. Do good. Live meaningfully. Living meaningfully for Christians means doing good. That's it. If you understand that, you've got the whole message and you can go home if you really want to. It means continue to do good. It's not a once off. It means living me, uh, live meaningfully on an ongoing basis. I'm utterly convinced that this church, this community, are committed to doing good. Utterly convinced of it. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've been blessed by it. We as a family have. Utterly convinced. I mean, you, act, you, you get what it means to do good. It's not as if you're not doing it. So, this message is not intended to say, yeah, I mean, you've, you guys, you've missed the bus. It's not what it's supposed to say. It's not a, it's not a message that says, come on, church, wake up. It's not that, because you actually already do it. It's more intended to answer a question that we, we should all be asking ourselves all the time namely, how can we live more meaningfully? How can we live more meaningfully? How can we continue to, how can we do even more good? So to help answer this question, I want to become theological for a moment. So we're going to take you into a bit of theology. Just, I need to leave you with a few things that you can wrestle with for the next year. (laughs) Uh, At least. So we'll we'll talk about a few theological concepts. Um, I want to turn to what I call a theological golden thread that catalyzes us into ever more meaningful living. So let me say that again. It's a theological golden thread that catalyzes us into ever more meaningful living, that energizes us into ever more meaningful living. So I want to show you a bit of a a theological golden thread. A number of theological concepts and ideas that hang together that tries to distill and tease out this whole thing about living meaningfully as God meant it to be. So follow with me as I open it up a little bit more. There it is, the theological golden thread that catalyzes us into ever more meaningful living. It starts here with a mission day. You've heard me talk about many of these concepts and ideas before, so it's not new, but let's string them together. Let's bring them together in a new way this morning. God is on a mission, we know that. That's what mission means. It's a theological word, but it really only means God is on a mission. He's busy with something all the time. And the thing that God is busy with is to grow and to, to make happen, actualize, and to incarnate, make it visible, this thing of shalom, which is that whole notion of completeness, wholeness, and well-being, to make it better for people and for this world. That's what God is busy with. Miss your day. And he's never not busy with this, which is the other interesting way to look at it. It's not as if God says, man, whew, five days of hard work. I need to stop a little bit now. Take a break. No. God doesn't take that kind of break. He invites us to partner with him in doing this, which is absolutely a miracle in and of itself. So he goes, he goes, says, Johan, I want you to become part of this thing that I'm busy with. Sometimes we pray, Lord, I'm busy with this thing. Would you like to become part of that? God says, man, I've already invited you to become part of my bigger thing. What is, what is this thing? You know, just, let, let's just get the recipe right here. Sometimes we miss that a little bit. We're always the second act in the story. I've talked about this before, but don't miss this. I mean, God is busy with something. He calls us in, invites us in to partner with, with him to do his things Within the context that he planted us in, within the work environment, within what, the means that he gives us to do so, of course, there's a context to all of this. And then he goes, he says, "Okay, so I'll prepare the way for you. I'll go ahead and I'll I'll make it ready for you." So often, when we get to speak to somebody, by the time we get to speak with him about Jesus. We discover, wait a minute, God has been active in their lives, you know, doing something behind the scenes that I, well, I, I didn't expect this to happen. You know, they're actually more ready to hear about Jesus than I knew or I thought because God has actually already, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, been working in their hearts. That's what it means to be the second act in the story. Uh, I'm at a point in my life where I always now expect myself to be the second act in the story. There was a time earlier in my life when I thought, man, if I don't do it, nobody else is going to do it, and I, you know, I need to do this. I forgot that God is always busy doing it anyway, <laughs> and He's just inviting us to do it with Him. Ooh, sorry about that. But like this, I'm going to show you that video clip that I talked about that we've seen before, but have a look at it again. It's a video clip that challenges us as a church, as a community, again, to be about God's business, God's mission. The challenge is very clear. Interesting video clip. I mean, obviously it's a church with their four words, launch, liberate, all of that, that uh, put together this video clip. I mean, this, this is discipling. This is to be busy with the mission of God. You know, it really prompts us, really makes us think more deeply. Alf always says this thing, I've, a number of people say, say it actually, but Alf always says this thing about, we're not called to make decisions, we're called to make disciples, really what it's about. You said it to me again this morning. (laughs) I love it. it. Reminded me of that. It's fantastic. Live meaningfully. This whole thing of it starts with the mission of God. If we want to live meaningfully, partner with God in what He's busy with, in doing what He's already busy with. Then it becomes a matter of, okay, Lord, help me to understand what is it that you're busy with in the context that I am in, where you've planted me? What is it that you you are actually doing here? I just need to connect to that. It's not a question then of, okay, what do I have to do for God in this this place? It's just a question of, Lord, what are you busy with in this place? So that I can connect to that. That's a different question. It's a much easier question to actually connect with and to answer. Where am I? (laughs) Let's go on. The mission day, participation in God's mission starts with intimate relationship. Now, this is another huge theological word. So, I did warn you, I'm going to go a little bit theological on you this morning. So, let's talk about this one. It starts with intimate relationship like what we find in the Trinity called perichoresis. Perichoresis, yeah, I spelled it wrong there. See, Anyway, amazing concept. Let me try to open this up a little bit. I don't believe it's possible to connect with what God is busy with if we're not in intimate relationship with him. You know, that's what's required. Partnering with God almost requires a marriage. For me to partner with Jacqueline in doing life requires an intimate, deep marriage relationship, covenant relationship. I believe it's exactly the same with God. God is calling us into that kind of relationship. A partnering relationship to be busy with what he's busy with in partnership. But it comes from that space, an intimate covenant space like in a marriage. Same thing. So this word, perichoresis, is a description of the intimate relational dynamics between the three persons of the Trinity as they actualize as one. And what the heck does that mean? So let me try to break it open. It's, it's, quite, it's quite easy if you really break it open. Basically, it means with intimate relationship, we are moving together as one towards whatever we are busy with, or whatever good we are supposed to do. That really easy. Imagine me and Jacqueline moving together as one in doing life, in doing good. That's the idea Yeah. And you get this notion very strongly in the Trinity. That's what the Trinity does. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is in this kind of relationship. It's described sometimes as the fellowship of three co-equal persons perfectly embraced in love and harmony and expressing an ne- intimacy. No one can really understand, but, but man, we see it. They move together as one in incredible ways, in synergizing ways. That's the idea. You see, the idea I think that God has when we partner with him, this covenant, deep, intimate relationship, is that that relationship becomes a synergizing and energizing and empowering relationship. It's as if God says, man, I want to empower you. I want to be so close to you that I can actually energize you. That we can speak to one another like this with immediacy, and I can help you do good in a better way. So that as your coach, your leader, because remember God is the first act in the story, he's the leader, I can just guide you all the time with ease. I think it goes further. I think the nature of the intimacy of this relationship is best described by the Hebrew word yada. It's another theological concept in a way. And you get it here. There's a number of places where we get it right from Genesis. um, And it's used in a number of different ways. But basically it means really deeply intimate like in a marriage. As intimate as as it can get. Intimacy in marriage is a type of the intimacy in the Trinity, not the other way around. It flows from the intimacy that is in the Trinity. God duplicated that in a small way in marriage. You get that? Amazing stuff. This whole idea of Yada, let us strive to know and be deeply intimate with God. Uh, This idea of as intimate as when intercourse happens. And it's not a sexual concept at all. It's an intimacy concept. Nothing hidden. Totally naked to the soul with God. That's what he desires. It's from that kind of relationship that we can be partnering with God in the Mishu day. Goes further. Goes into this thing, the Imago day. Wow. The possibility of such an intimate relationship with God finds its roots in this concept of the Imago Dei. Now, another theological concept. Basically, it says this, the image of God. We are made in the image of God and made to be image bearers of His image. We are after His kind and made to show others what God in action looked like, like Jesus did. That's what the Imago uh, Day in essence means. Doing as he does. In other words, doing good all the time. That's after God's kind. Uh, God's kind of action and activity and and being is doing good. From the basis of this intimate relationship that we talked about. Just stringing a few things together for you this morning. It's all around living meaningfully. It's all around becoming ever more meaningful in the way we live. I want to open up this concept of the Imago Day in a slightly different way. Some of these thoughts may be slightly challenging, but I want to show you another video clip. And just follow this. Um, If you want to watch the video clip afterwards again, come and uh, just ask me, and I can email it to you or something like that. Have a look at this one.
1: The canvas of God's love is broad. But as Christians exercise the love of God in the world, one common thread holds it all together. The Christian story speaks of a mystery that lies deep in the soul of every human being. In the beginning, God in all his power and creativity reached down to craft a world that reflects his glory. By his word, he spoke the planets into existence But with his hands and his breath, he sculpted men and women unlike anything else. The scriptures tell us that human beings were God's masterwork. And he wrote his signature, set his imprint on the human soul. Humans are created in the imago Dei, the image of God. We have the ability to create, worship, communicate, reason, and relate. We are capable of love and responsible for our actions. The Christian story also tells us that humankind, created for intimacy with God, rejected God instead. Created to reflect Him, we sought to replace Him. This sin brought death and destruction into the world. But the fall is not the end of the story. For God sent a Redeemer, the perfect image of the invisible God, who took the fractured pieces of our humanity and bound them up, restoring the broken image of God and renewing our lost fellowship with Him this the image of god changes everything it shapes how we see the world and one another and calls us to honor the image of god in everyone christians work to alleviate poverty disease and starvation because even the poorest of the poor are created by god in the image of god Christians work to rescue and rehabilitate abducted and trafficked girls and boys because there is no such thing as a disposable human being created by God and in God's image. Christians fight abortion because children created by God in the image of God should not be terminated and discarded and because mothers created by God and in God's image deserve our care. Christians uphold the dignity of the elderly and disabled because all who are created by God in his image are fearfully and wonderfully made and dear to him. Christians work on behalf of all immigrants because they too are created by God in the image of God and should be welcomed as we would welcome Christ. Christians work for religious liberty because the freedom to follow one's conscience is part of what it means to be created by God in the image of God. Christians work for the flourishing of marriage because it's an instrument of blessing for women and men created by God in the image of God and the essential building block of a flourishing society. Christians work for racial unity and reconciliation because all people created by God in the image of God share something much deeper than skin color. In short, There has never been a human being who was not created by God in God's image. And that's what animates everything we do, the common thread that holds it all together. God's image compels God's children to love all people. The world is broken. We yearn for the day when Christ will make all things new. But for today, we do what we do. We strive for justice and dignity, liberty and flourishing because every person who bears the stamp of God matters to God and matters to us.
0: That's the Imago day. Living meaningfully is to do good because people are made in God's image. All of us are. God is busy with this mission to do good from this intimate relational space that he calls us into to partner with him because of the way that he created us and and cares for us, because we are his and according to his imprint and his kind, calls us to be his image bearers, to do as he does. I'm going to skip over this. We know about the fall and all those kind of things. Uh, there was this freedom to reject the relationship with the creator, which is the sadness of our world. I mean, from the beginning, God created us with freedom of choice. The Jewish proverb says, everything is foreseen, but free will is given. It's not as if God is surprised by anybody's choices, but we can choose. He doesn't force us to choose anyway. So people can choose against God. People can choose to do their own thing, or they can choose to become partners with God in what He's busy with. Oh, it's, it's obvious when you're on the other side of, of this equation what the better option is. There's just nothing that surpasses traveling with God and doing what He's busy with. There's just nothing better than that intimate, deep relationship with God. It's even more intimate than you can get in a very, very good marriage. There's just nothing better than seeing people like God does and honoring them that way. Doing good to them for those reasons because you see them as God does. There's nothing better, stringing thoughts together. The recovery of this relationship that flourishes the Imago Dei in and through us again is called salvation or rebirth. Now, we did speak about rebirth a while ago. Open that up a little bit. It's, it's how we get into this new relationship with God again. It is giving our lives over. It's like you stand in front of the pulpit on your wedding day and you say, Yes, Lord, I want to become married to you in a covenant relationship that is exclusive and that is forever. That's rebirth, salvation. But I think it's a bit wider than just that. Salvation can be both personal, let's call it rebirth or whatever you want to call it, and it can be corporate. Comprehensive salvation is the word we use in theology for this. So personal uh, salvation we understand quite well, we've talked about it, we've looked at rebirth. Comprehensive salvation is a bit more difficult. I think we've made it just too personal. Personal. It's not just a personal thing. I mean, salvation starts with this personal, let's marry God kind of concept. But man, that marriage is supposed to be a tremendous blessing to everybody and everything around it. That's comprehensive salvation. It's supposed to make it better wherever it goes. It's supposed to do good. Why do God bring people together in this intimate relation? Not just because we cannot function on our own. It's because God wants a team that synergizes for Him and together with Him. It's because in a good marriage, we make one another more than we can ever be on our own. Because of Jacqueline, man... If it wasn't for Jacqueline, I wonder where I would have been today, who I would have been. I can promise you I would have been less than half of what I am now. Well at least that's what I believe. That's what a good marriage does. Let's go into this thing of comprehensive salvation just quickly. A people or a community flourishing where they are planted, that's what it means. Uh, the form of life which the church community manifests in its mission and ministry must reveal something of God's coming, shalom. Uh, Let's not go into the author there, but yeah, this whole thing of, wow, okay, comprehensive salvation means that this community does good and show people what God has in mind, how good it is to be with God. It's about showing and pulling others in. It's about making a difference for good in our environment. What has God planted us to do here? If this church disappears off the radar tomorrow, wiped out in some way, shape, or form, what would this community miss most? What would they lack most? It's that kind of question. What kind of difference for good will be missing in this community, in this environment, in this sphere of lives that we touch through through this church if it disappears? Therefore, the call to this church and to each of us live meaningfully. Make it so that they would severely miss us if we were not here. Severely. So much so that they cannot even imagine life without this community. Make it so. That's comprehensive salvation. Let me give you another theological thought here. It's out of a book. Swinton, the same guy, identifies the church, the body of Christ, as the primary means. Plan number one that God wishes to use to implement shalom, this whole thing of completeness, wholeness, well-being, making it better. Where evolution then carries the connotation of a gradual process whereby the whole of creation, never mind all of that, that's quite academic. It's the kind of salvation that constantly strives for greater degrees of completeness, wholeness, well-being, betterness in people's lives and in this world. This is what Alf said earlier and what I quoted. To spread the kingdom of God is more than simply winning people to Christ. It's more than simply helping people to make a personal commitment. It's about more. This kind of salvation is about much bigger. It starts there, but it's much bigger than that. It's also working for the healing of persons, of families, of relationships. It's doing deeds of mercy and seeking justice. It is making our world better. It is working to save the brokenness of this world together with God. That thing is called comprehensive salvation. So back to our golden thread for a moment. This golden thread, I believe, continues in that, okay, wait a minute. We now know that there's a mission. God is busy with something. We know that He calls us to partner with Him in this mission. We know that this requires that we have an intimate covenant relationship with Him. yada, Very intimate, like in marriage. We know it actually requires that we marry God. We make the commitment and we start doing life with Him, doing good so that it can be a meaningful life together with God. Rest assured, when you marry God, He will guide you into making life meaningful anyway. He will never stop doing so because that's what He's busy with. We know that this doing good thing that God calls us into when He marries us is not just for us, it's not just personal, it is to do good wherever we can, on a wider plane and scope. That's called comprehensive salvation. Now there's another interesting thing that happens the moment we get married to God. In order to help us to live more meaningfully, to do life better, to do good better with God, He does two things. He justifies us, and he sanctifies us. What does that mean? We've preached about this before as well. Justification simply means that God puts us in the right relationship with him. That close, intimate relationship out of which all kinds of things can happen, synergy can happen. We can journey together. Justification simply means that. It means our position with God is now right. I'm facing God in front of the pulpit, and I'm marrying him justification so we are now married we've given one another the rings Uh, where's laura and jeremy they know all about this so if you have any questions go and ask them (laughs) after that's justification sanctification is a little bit different because we've we've been totally married now but now we need to start to learn to live together well (laughs) that's sanctification no, 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 if you do that thing that you used to do before we married, man, that's not, that's not a good thing for you personally, but it's definitely not good for our relationship either. So you have to drop that thing, and we have to teach you to do life in a better way than that thing. That's sanctification. So that together we can enjoy life fully. You see the image of sanctification? Yeah, That's what it is. So God starts this process. Now, we can resist it. We can be hard of hearing or stubborn. All human qualities that does surface from time to time, at least in my life, maybe not in yours, but definitely mine, we can resist. The less we resist, the quicker we accept and journey with God around these things, the quicker the blessing that it is becomes real. So this... Salvation justifies us, and then God helps us to sanctify. I call this the position-condition paradox. We've talked about this before. My position in Christ is 100%. My condition is not yet, so God is growing me to become what He already sees me to be. He's married me. He sees me as 100% right for Him in marriage. But I still have habits that doesn't fit this relationship. So He's journeying with me out of that, so, so that I can let those habits go and learn better habits. God helps us with sanctification so that we can ever more flourish due to growing measures of Shalom and so that we can in turn flourish others in our world as we partner with God. I mean the less of those bad habits I had before we married and the more of these godly habits that I've now learned is in my life, the more I can do good together with God. That's it. And then it goes, yeah, uh, I think this is all basically outworked by means of love in action as the fruit of the Spirit. Now, it's interesting, this thing, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, I've often heard preachers say, oh, the fruits of the Spirit, it's not fruits, it's one fruit, like an orange that you cut open, it has, I've counted, an orange usually has nine, or even ten, uh, sometimes ten if it's an aberrant orange, but it's usually nine, one of those things. And there's nine of, nine of these things. It's quite interesting. It's like an orange. One fruit. And all hangs together. You know, how do we outwork these things? One fruit, various aspects or manifestations. Galatians five twenty two. But the fruit of the Spirit, the result of His presence within us. The result of the fact that we are now married and intimately connected is love. Unselfish concern for others. Joy. This is the Amplified, of course. Inner peace, patience. Not the ability to wait, but how we act while waiting. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I believe love is the key. works like this. Let me run through this with you just very quickly. I believe love is the core and the key. That's where it all starts. all about love. All, All aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is about love. I mean, the orange is about being an orange, not about being nine different slices of an orange. The nine slices are simply nine different ways in which the orange is an orange. So the nine different slices of the fruit of the Spirit is simply Different ways in which love, godly love, is love outworked. That's all it is. Joy is love singing. Peace is love resting and having faith or trust. Patience is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. It's not about selfishness. It's you know, it's about others. Self-control is love holding the reins rather than just letting it rip, letting it go. Does that make sense? I hope it does. To continue growing the fruit of the Spirit and even bear more fruit requires something that I call spiritual disciplines. I mean, that's what theology calls it. Continue growing this. I mean, God wants us to, to tend our lives. To take care of them, to grow them, so that the fruit can be better and bigger. It sometimes requires pruning. It sometimes, well, not sometimes. It always requires exercise, always. Spiritual growth or growth together with God, I don't believe, is ever devoid or ever ever not involving exercise. So if you absolutely hate exercise, you're going to be in trouble. Spiritual exercise, I mean. Let's have a look at the spiritual disciplines. Spiritual exercises done regularly in God's gym so that I can become fitter and stronger in doing good. So God is the coach. The more we listen, the quicker we become fit and strong. Hey, wait a minute. Don't pick up that weight. You're not yet ready for it. Do 17 of these lighter ones rather than three of those heavy ones that's going to crack your muscles. Now that, that kind of thing. That's what the coach does. The coach says, look, we, we have seven exercises today, and I've chosen them so that they work together, and they, they give you the best possible result. You can do your own seven exercises, but I promise you they won't work together as well. That's how a coach works. The gym has many apparatus, like prayer, giving, etc., etc. I think the best list we find is in one Peter or two Peter one, and it says this. Why is this thing? It's doing an interesting thing, but never mind. Okay, for this very reason, adding your diligence. Now note this: it says you're adding your diligence. It doesn't say for this very reason. Now that you want to grow spiritual and you want to become fitter in doing good. You should let God do this for you. It doesn't say that. It says you yourself now exercise. You exercise this diligence. The obligation to exercise towards greater levels of fitness is first and foremost on us. Now, God is the coach, and he's standing ready for us to listen to him. But it's our work here. It's not God's. We've already been justified now. So it's not as if God's still trying to save us. He's just trying to help us to become better in the the area of sanctification. Employ every effort, our effort, not God's, in exercising your faith to develop virtue, which the Amplified then says is excellence, resolution, Christian energy. I love that. Wow, man. And in exercising virtue, develop knowledge, or intelligence. This is also understanding of the scripture and of God's way. And in exercising knowledge, develop self-control. This whole thing of holding the reins, even to the extent of not becoming discouraged. That very first verse that we read. And in exercising self-control, develop steadfastness or patience and endurance. Because sometimes you do good but you grow weary. All of us do. That's, once again, back to Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of becoming, the. I mean, we need endurance for this. When you start with exercise physically, you want to run the, a, a, a marathon, man, initially the first three kilometers kills you when you start training. I mean, you can only run three kilometers and only slowly at that. But a year later, it's a very different story. If you keep at it, it requires effort. But yeah, and in exercising steadfastness, steadfastness, develop godliness or piety, and in exercising godliness, develop brotherly affection. I mean, it's easy to love people who are like us in a community like this, but that's not enough. That's not what God's, God, where God stops. It's important because it's part of what we need to exercise to help one another, to care for one another, to love one another. But it goes further. And in exercising brotherly affection, develop Christian love or love for all people, some translations say. going to finish it off. This is the last slide, last words. Note that a truly meaningful life grows to love all people. Now, remember, we're talking about love in action. The kind of love that, do, that does good, that makes it better. That grows shalom, completeness, wholeness, and well-being. Last words, we are called to live meaningfully and we do so by doing good. I believe it can be measured by how much good we do and how much godly change it affects. And when I say how much good, I'm not talking about the number of good deeds. That's not it. And it's more about the quality of those deeds and what difference it makes together with God for Good. So once again, I say, church, live meaningfully. Amen.